This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of equanimity. And it's good to remember from the beginning that there are two, quite clearly two different interpretations, understandings and approaches to this fourth immeasurable. From the Theravada approach, it really is maintaining kind of one's composure in the midst of adversity and felicity, recognizing whatever is arising is simply arising because of prior causes and conditions. In terms of the pleasant and unpleasant that occurs to us, Buddhist understanding is this is just the maturation of karma. People treating us badly, karma ripening. People treating us wonderfully, it's karma ripening. But whatever it is, the seeds were sown and now they're coming to maturation. And so taking it in stride. And whether or not one believes in karma, whatever is taking place, it's not occurring, and this is a radically different way of viewing reality, it's not occurring because of a bunch of independent egos like billiard balls just kind of banging into each other in pleasant and unpleasant ways because of pleasant and unpleasant people. My, my Look at my fist, it always gives you the idea. As if we're nuclear, some people are just good and some people are just bad and they're just, that's the way they are. But rather, whatever's arising is arising in the mode of pratita samudbhata, dependent origination. Everybody has a Buddha nature, but how we're manifesting from moment to moment relates to the qualities of mental states, wholesome mental states, mental afflictions, and so forth. These coming in contact with sensory stimuli and so forth, and then, mani- and then behavior manifests. And so... The Theravada understanding of this, the emphasis is really on maintaining that evenness, that composure, that equanimity in the face of whatever comes up. And in that regard, then one needs to be immediately aware of what is the near enemy, what is the, the way to slip off track. And that is to maintain equanimity, no matter what's happening in the world, that is when they check the news, see the latest disaster, the latest catastrophe, and so forth, take it all in stride, but the very easy way to, go, to get derailed in the cultivation of equanimity is stupid indifference, or just aloof indifference. That is, one just withdraws, withdraws the field of caring, withdraws the field of caring, and just say, that's outside of my field. The latest disaster was in Reno, Nevada. Some plane crashed into some people, killed three, wounded a lot of others. And so one can attend to that and say, well, but I'm not from Reno. I'm not from Nevada. I'm not from the United States. I'm not from North America. I'm not from the Northern Hemisphere. Whatever way, you know, a boundary comes out, that's not within my field. That's not my concern. And so there's indifference there. One is not feeling attachment or aversion. But it's because there's no heart. There's no caring. And so in withdrawing one's attachment... One is also withdrawing any warmth, any caring, any real humanness, the good heart. So, so there's the, clearly that is just a, a, track, a, a track to emotional deadness, aloofness, kind of withering on the vine of a human being, where you might even, you might even get so good at it you don't even really care that much for yourself. Could happen. How are you doing? Getting by. Could be worse. Let's change, let's change the topic. No. I think that people get their, 
where even the impulse of really caring about themselves, what would you, what would you love? What would bring you happiness? I try not to think about that. It can happen. Isn't it true? So even the tendency of caring for oneself, let alone your children, your family, your neighborhood, your species, fellow sentient beings, all of that, you can actually come right in, encroach right in upon yourself. You're not even caring that much about yourself. So, there's no way to look upon that as a virtue. So where's the challenge? To maintain that composure, that evenness, and yet the heart is open. There is still the caring. Let's look at a strong parallel. Because this whole time we're spending together, this whole retreat, and it largely is a retreat, to some, some degree an expedition. But set, these are so complementary, these two sides, the, the shamatha and the four measurables. If we come back to the very first phase of mindfulness of breathing, maybe resting in the infirmary with that full body awareness just being present, Somebody want to remind me what's the balancing act? It's rather important to remember. What's the balancing act? Is there something to cultivate? What's the balancing act? No. What's about it? I mean, of course, we always want to balance that. There's something, but that's true all the way through, right? That's, now, I'm looking at this one phase, this very early phase, the first phase out of three phases of mindfulness breathing. There's a balancing act that is unique to, distinctive of that phase. So your answer is generically right, but not specifically right. So what's the balancing act? Catherine? That's exactly right, yeah. So there's the sense of deepening relaxation, of letting go, of ease. Exactly right. I'm just elaborating on what you said. A sense of ease, of deepening relaxation. Again, I spoke with someone today as if you're allowing your body to fall asleep. But, as Catherine exactly rightly said, without trying to enhance stability or enhance clarity, just don't lose the clarity you already have. Just don't get dull. Don't get mentally dull. Right? Now that's actually a, a strategy that could lead to falling asleep lucidly. So your body actually goes to sleep, your mind goes to sleep, but your awareness doesn't go to sleep. The awareness, you're just keeping the light on all the way through. And lo and behold, after a while, you might hear somebody snoring. Oh, that's me. <laughs> right? But you haven't lost your clarity. So, But now look at the parallel. And that is you're relaxing more and more deeply. There you are. You're settling definitely into kind of a composure of like equanimity. Right? Because it's not, it's not attached. It's not aver- there's no aversion. There's no attachment. It's just cool, relaxed, loose. But you're not losing the clarity. Right? Really good way to start. If you start out that way, the next step is bound to be good. Right? And if you start out by contraction, eh, the next step is probably not going to be so good. Right? So look at the parallel there. That deepening sense of relaxation that can just keep on going and going and going until you're a Buddha, or until you're chief shamatha at least, without losing the clarity. And then on the affective side, from the heart, Imagine just developing a more and more profound sense of equanimity, imperturbability. It does not mean your emotions are flat. It means there's a composure there that's going right down to the core, down to your belly button, you know, really deep, no matter what happens. Composure is there, the presence is there, 
You're not getting into a flap. You're not getting thrown into turbulence, into cognitive dissonance. A deepening sense of composure, just almost like an ocean-like equanimity. And yet your heart is open. The caring is there. The warmth is there. The caring is there. But the relaxation is there. That looseness, the equanimity is there. It's a strong parallel. Right? A strong parallel. So I would suggest this cultivation of equanimity really encompasses both. And we're beginning, in the very beginning of every session, we settle the body, we settle the respiration, and then we settle the mind in its natural state. Okay. What's the very first step of settling the mind in its natural state? What do we do when you're doing that? Settling the mind, not as a big shamatha practice, just in that little initial sequence, the warming up. What's the crucial element? Please again remind me. This is one of those things worth remembering. Sure, well that's, but that's always true. It's like Katinka's. That's a gen, that's, uh, yep, aware, if, whatever the question is, awareness has got to be right. <laughs> yeah, more specifically, Katinka. Yeah, but, uh, just seeing the, like, feeling the awareness settling down in the body, so you can feel the... Yeah, you've already done that in, in the settling the respiration in this natural, in fact, already in, with the, with the body you've done that. Done you've already done it, yeah. Now we're coming very specifically, I'm looking now for some very specific answers. Because bringing this clarity can really be helpful. I'll be with you in just a sec, Chris. That is, imagine you've already settled the body, ease, stillness, and vigilance. Then you've settled, having settled your awareness throughout the body, being very mindful of the body, the sensations of the breathing in the body. Then you've settled your respiration in its natural rhythm. It's effortless, it's flowing, like that. And now we're going to go to even a subtler level. We're now settling the mind as a preparatory practice, settling the mind in its natural state, and what's the first thing we do? Chris. Yeah, that is as the, for the shamatha practice. For the shamatha practice of settling the mind. Yeah, but I'm looking for something a little bit prior to that. You're right, as a shamatha practice. But what I'm looking at is the preliminary. You want, before we do mindfulness of breathing, we settle the body, speech, and mind in their natural states. So the same terminology, but now I'm looking just for that preliminary before you do any shamatha practice. Okay? So, right answer uh, to the wrong question. Okay? Rosa. Yes, we are. And what, and what are we, among the three qualities, what's the one that we're cultivating right now? Three qualities of mind. You're right. It Just keep the role going. No. Oh. Oh. Break my heart. Oh, you break my heart. <laughs> no, what's the first quality? It's not stability, it is. <laughs> give me a, give me a shot of adrenaline and a heart quick. What's that? <sighs> You've settled the body with Ease, stillness and vividness, or vigilance. You've settled the respiration without constraint and without relax, and without effort. And now you've settled the mind with three qualities, the first one of which is relaxation, yeah. Now of the mind. Yeah. You've settled the body 
with physical ease. You've settled the respiration with a sense of effortless. And now we come to the mind. We're going from coarse to subtle, right? So the first one. Now you never forget. If I ask you 30 years from now, I wake you up in the middle of the night. Rosa, what's the first quality? Ease. (laughs) That's what I want to hear. You will remember this day. (laughs) So that's right. That's right. You're setting your mind at ease. That's the first quality. Setting your mind at ease. Well, that's a very nice thing to do, but we need a strategy. Everybody wants their mind at ease. Who doesn't? Who wants to say, oh, I want to be uptight? No. So, But now we need a strategy. So now you're on the right track. How do you set your mind at ease? As the first of the three qualities, at ease, in stillness, and in vigilance, how do you set your mind at ease? Letting go of grasping? To what? Yeah, good. good. You'll remember, now that I put you on the spot. You remember this way. Letting go of what? Grasping to what? Anybody. Hope and fear, correct. Santiago. That's what I was looking for. That was the fish I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you, Santiago. He gave me the fish I was looking for. Exactly right. And it's very important. Because when we think, what does letting go of grasping to thoughts about the future and the past Letting go of all your concerns about the future and the past. Your hopes and fears. That was another one that came up, rightly. Your hopes and fears about the future and the past. Right. More generically, your your concerns. More generically, your thoughts. This is selective attention. This is really useful. Open presence is very pleasant. Choices, awareness, bare attention, all that's good. But it's not selective attention. It's kind of like, oh, like that. Good. And that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But gosh, there are so many cases in life where that's just not what the doctor ordered. If you're driving in heavy traffic to go, oh, <coughs> you know, not what the doctor ordered. You're working on a business plan. You're an artist. You're on the telephone call. Oh, what? <laughs> you know, so selective attention is a skill to be cultivated. And if we consider what distresses us mentally, what distresses, what throws us out of equanimity mentally? It's mostly our thoughts, and especially our thoughts about the past and future. As we linger on, we ruminate on unpleasant, sad memories, disturbing memories, even happy memories, then attachment and craving comes up. Or we anticipate the future, and we're anticipating a happy future, an unhappy future. Either way, craving and hostility come up, and we're thrown out of equanimity. And so, what do we do? To set and and whenever that happens, either the mind is caught up in craving or hostility, caught up in happiness, kind of oh good like that, some stimulus-driven happiness, or some stimulus-driven unhappiness. Either way, we've lost the equanimity. Now it's off to the side. So we're trying to establish this equilibrium. And so we release, to, and it's, it's an act of will, it's a skill to be developed, and it can save so much wear and tear, so much unnecessary grief, sadness, depression, anxiety. Just to learn how to focus your attention, to selectively direct your attention where you will. And on occasion, let it be right in the present moment, right in the present moment, 
even as we see in the prelude to awareness of awareness, bringing it right into the present moment and taking nothing as an object. That is bound to induce equanimity because there's nothing there to arouse attraction or aversion. No object. right? So there it is. Or just coming into the present and then being aware of the in and out breath. Again, it doesn't tend to arouse craving or hostility. Happiness, stimulus-driven happiness, or stimulus-driven unhappiness, brings us into a state of equilibrium, balance. And in that there's some ease, like, oh, okay, now I can relax. I'm not being yanked this way or that way. I'm now in the present moment. There's a sense of ease. And now that I'm not anxious, disturbed, upset about the future or the past, just resting in the simplicity of the present moment. There's a possibility for stillness that is not achieved with contraction. If I'm upset about something, and then I bear down, stop it, stop thinking about that person, and I cut it off. So, now you see my, my hands have gone into double mudra, Double-fisted. Okay, cut it off. Cut it out. Stop it. Well, as long as I can maintain the pressure, as soon as it's off, it'll just come creeping right back in again, right? And so, if we can just release, releasing the past, releasing the future, come into the present, and that looseness, there can be stillness. And in that stillness, then the natural luminosity of your own awareness can manifest so you don't need to add on clarity, vividness. It's right there in the nature of awareness when it's not being obscured or especially not being obscured by grasping. Especially grasping of hope and fear, craving and hostility. It's a strong parallel. Of maintaining that stillness, that sense of ease, that deepening sense of relaxation without getting bored, without losing the clarity, without falling into dullness, and so forth and so on. There's a type of equanimity, kind of baseline. And to do, for, to do that for a more sustained period, mindfulness breathing is really, really good. It's really marvelous. Just to overall develop that equanimity of breathing in, breathing out. And again, among the three qualities, are you going to kick into bliss really quickly? Some people, yes, but most people, no. By just following the breath, most people don't get bliss really quickly. Most people, when just in the earlier phases of mindfulness of breathing, they're not having flashes of radiantly clear awareness, the epiphanies, the euphoria, and so forth. Not that much either. But what does happen and this is very feasible. It's very much within reach. And simply breathing in and breathing out, attending to the flow of the breath, and releasing with every out-breath the congestion of the mind, of the conceptual mind, releasing with every out-breath, every out-breath. Getting more and more sustained periods of three seconds and five seconds and 60 seconds of some inner peace and quiet. Non-conceptuality, that third quality, of just, after all the turbulence that I put up with for so many years and considered to be normal, a bit of peace and quiet goes down really nicely.
not dopey, not dull, not trance-like, very present and clear, but quiet. And finding, you know, I could get used to this. This isn't boring. It's not boring. It's clear enough not to be boring. To be breathing in, breathing in. Even like to have, like having a nice long massage. One of the really soft massages. It's just really all about just soothing and loosening up the muscles and feels more kind of like a caress and so forth. If it goes on for an hour, an hour and a half, kind of like, okay, tomorrow's okay, that's fine, give you another $10, go for it. You know, okay, no problem. And so to familiarize ourselves with that sense of ease, that sense of equanimity, lingering there in the center, where we're not being stimulated and aroused by pleasant sensations that give rise to, a, to attachment, desire, hope, and so forth, not being aroused by unpleasant stimulation that gives rise to aversion and fear, but willing to come right into the center where, kind of into a center where there's very little stimulation, maybe no more stimulation than in and out breath, and releasing all the other stimulation, like that of, of discursive thoughts and so forth. If we come to rest there and can be content to remain there with some modicum of clarity and a deepening sense of relaxation, we're cultivating equanimity. We're cultivating an inner peace of mind. And that's really quite healthy. And the more we have that, and now let's move to the other side of equanimity, the more we've cultivated that inner composure, that sense of calm, kind of quiet, something peaceful and modestly pleasant. Finally, we're maintaining that. And the, the noise, the congestion of involuntary thoughts has really subsided, like the dust has settled. Right? If you venture out into the world with that, as you maybe anticipate, you know, leaving this retreat in five weeks now, you venture out and you attend to other people. Because the noise, the congestion of involuntary thoughts of I, me, mine, I, me, mine, my past, my future, my hopes, my fears, which is like throwing up a smoke screen, you know, as we engage with anybody else. I look over at Jan, hopes and fears, hopes and fears, what can he do for me? Is going to be nice to me? Am I going to enjoy this encounter? Will I not enjoy the encounter? Is it going to be boring? Will I hope? Oh, you know. It's like, is Jan in there anywhere at all? I can hardly see him through the smoke, you know, of all my, I, me, mine, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. But when that settles down, say, oh, oh, there's another human being over there, son of a gun. You know? Who would have thought? I'm not alone in the world. You know? And so then we can actually begin attending to. And there's a real possibility, and now we're going over to the other side of equanimity, is attending to others in a way that really addresses their human beings, their humanity, whatever their gender is, their age, attractiveness, unattractiveness, pleasantness, unpleasantness in terms of behavior, disposition, and so forth. Sentient being, sentient being, sentient being, each one. Attending there in this I-you relationship. Well, insofar as there's a composure, a sense of well-being, some sense of our own internal resources for well-being, then when we attend to others, we actually may attend to another sentient being without slipping into the ever-so-habitual I-it relationship. Insofar as we're just not even aware of our own internal resources. If we're alone, we just feel bored. If we're alone, we just feel restless. And either way, I'm bored and restless, bored and restless, bored and restless. Oh, there's Anila. <laughs> 
Oh, Anala's interesting, but she's had a fascinating history. Anala, entertain me. Tell me about your past. Tell me about the great lamas you've met. I'm really interested. Come on, entertain me. <laughs> Say something interesting. You're such a cool person. Tell me. What, what's, left, what's, what's a lovely realization? Do something for me. I've got nothing here. I'm dealing with an empty tank. So, Anilar, Jason, Aiden, somebody, give me a break here. Entertain me. Give me something. I got nothing. You know, how are we going to do even, you know, with a nun, with a young man, an elderly woman, whatever, how are we going to do anything other than relate to them in an I-it relationship? Do something for me. You've just come into my life. Oh, hello, Tracy. What can you do for me today? <laughs> That's the time I think Tracy wants to go, about face. March, march, march. <laughs> So to be able to really attend to others with equanimity, where, and now see the strong parallel, powerful parallel. We've seen, as Catherine pointed out, the first phase of settling the mind. It's a natural state, as a preliminary, this deepening sense of ease without losing the clarity. And now similarly, as we attend to others, Releasing the tightness, the tension that goes along with attachment. As soon as there's attachment, any kind of attachment, parent-child attachment, attachment between friends, between spouses, spouses, between lovers, between business associates, wherever there's attachment, there's going to be an absence of relaxation. We won't be at ease. As soon as there's attachment, there's expectation. You're my friend, no? so be my friend. You're my child, no? I'm dad, your child. Okay. What? Ex- expectation. Spouse, lovers, and so forth and so on. As soon as it's attachment, okay, so, ante up. Do your side of the deal. Oh, you're disappointing me. Oh, now you're pleasing me. Oh, disappointing me again. You know, it's all right there. It's It's tension. It's tension. It's kind of like, okay, I have some expectation you're going to do something for me now. And so to release that, to release the tension, the contraction, the tightness that always comes with attachment, whether it's for a thing, a human being, a place, a situation, and so forth, whatever there's attachment, there's tension, there's contraction, there's a, a lack of sense of ease. To release that, to release that, and not, and now remember aloof indifference, and not release the sense of caring. The sense of caring is still there, but the attachment is not. This is subtle. Okay. The monastic route for developing such equanimity, classic monastic route, is to radically disengage from all of your previous associations. As it says, I think, in the 37 practice of the Bodhisattvas. You're setting out on the path of Dharma? Go. go. Go to a distant land where nobody knows you. Start afresh. Right? It's like going into a witness protection program. Totally different environment. Get a totally different haircut. You change your name. Leave your passport and ID out. And then, this is big for men, be a cross-dresser. Well, never, you know, you used to wear blue jeans and a cool t-shirt, now you're wearing a red dress. Never, 
you know, they'll never, they'll never recognize you. And so you're in a situation now that is totally different. It's a, you've been reborn. You, you used to have this whole family and networks of, I like this, I love my, this brother, and I can't stand this sister, and my people across the street are awful, but nice, next, next door neighbor people are really like, nice, and so forth. Just one great big can of worms of attachments and aversions. And you just get a witness protection. And says, okay. Well, they don't know where you've gone, and they're saying, where did, where did he go? Where did he go? Where did he go? <laughs> you know? And then, now you're displaced into a totally new environment where nobody knows you, you know no, nobody, and the whole idea is you're starting out flat. Flat with no attachment. The ideal is you're starting out flat. No attachment, no aversion. A whole bunch of new people. And they all kind of look like you. They're all wearing red dresses and have bald heads. But then you try with that evenness, the ideal. And of course, it, it goes awry many times, and oftentimes it goes very well. In that new environment, that monastery, that nunnery, then the whole idea here is now from this platform, where you're coming in with no attachments, as little, as little as possible, attachments or aversions to anybody because you don't know anybody, try to develop an e- equality of awareness, an equality of open-heartedness to everyone around you, all your fellow monks, your nuns. If patrons come, this is really classic Theravada. Patrons come, benefactors come, you're even with respect to all of them. Whatever their gender is, they're attractive, unattractive, they bring you good food or bad food, the ideal that you really must do your best to live up to is even, even. In the last, in the last workshop we had here, we had about a dozen monks come. There was a holy day. And the monks came to receive a meal. And people could sign up and make the offering if they liked. Monks were cool as cucumbers. You know, just eyes down, offer the food, just composed. That's it, you know, just real equanimity. You didn't see one of them saying, oh, that's my favorite, thank you. <laughs> I was hoping for I was hoping for brown rice. Oh, oh you're really cute. There was none of that, you know. Just oh my, you know. they were just cool as cucumbers. They received the meal. They're sitting there, eyes down. You know, even. Now, of course, it can go awry. It can just be all aloof. That happens, but not all the time. Sometimes equanimity, but it's wide open. The heart is open and warm. So perhaps I've rambled enough. But I think these two aspects, the cognitive and the affective, are very closely intertwined. And the more that we can cultivate this inner sense of well-being, of peace of mind, and it has very much to do with selective attention. If the things in the past that trouble us, learn how to release it. Not how to ignore it, but it doesn't have to occupy the mind at all times. Right? And imagine maintaining composure. Imagine it whatever comes up, that we don't need to be the victims of circumstances, the victims of other people's behavior, positive or negative. Hold your own place, just like awareness holding its own ground, remaining in its own place. Hold your own place. Discover your own resources. Attend to others with an open heart, but with as little attachment as possible. So the monastic route is simpler not necessarily easier, not necessarily harder, but it's simpler in the sense that you simply disengage, ideally, ideally. I did. When I became a monk, you know, I was very far from my family. And so you disengage from all that whole network of attachments and aversions, and you seek then to, from baseline of an absence of attachment and aversion, to develop an even-heartedness 
of caring, of loving kindness and compassion. But that's not for all of us. Even those who are very, very dedicated to Dharma, it's not everybody's vocation to become monk or nun. Family is important. And so then the challenge is more subtle. Is it possible to attend to one's own children, one's own spouse, one's own family members without attachment? But with just as much love as ever, just as much caring, as warmth, of affection, kindness. So that's a much more subtle endeavor. Right? It's very easy just to pull back and then not care as much. That's easy. That's easy. That's kind of black and white. Okay, I won't experience so much turbulence. I just won't care about you as much anymore. And then much more equanimity. But one has pulled back both. Well, that's easy. Relatively. It's simple anyway. But to have the heart equally open, equally open, the tenderness, the warmth, the affection, the kindness, the caring, and then releasing the attachment. Filtering that out. And then extending it out. Letting the heart grow, not only to your own children, but your children's friends. Not only to your own spouse, but your spouse's friends. Not only your own family, but your next-door neighbors. Not only your next-door neighbors, the people in the whole valley. And so forth. The heart just expanding, but without the tentacles of attachment. So that's kind of a lot like settling the mind in its natural state. Wide open, attentive, present, but without the grasping. Without the, 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 the grasping, the attraction to some thoughts, memories, and so forth. Without the aversion for others. Open, present, very clear, but without the grasping of aversion or craving. So, it's kind of a fusion of the shamatha and the fourth of the four immeasurables. So how should we practice? I don't quite know, but let's just jump in and find out. Okay. Settle your body in equilibrium, balance, poise, with the three qualities.
utterly surrender control over your breathing, releasing deeply and fully with every out-breath. Until the next in-breath is given without being taken. And you simply accept the flowing in of the breath, however much it may be. And you release again. turn to the mind, which can be our worst enemy, that can torment us every day to the point of desperation, or the mind that can be our best friend. Let's master this mind, which is so powerful, and in large part we master the mind by learning how to direct our attention. Withdraw your attention now from the past and the future. Be satisfied with the present moment in all its simplicity. The past is gone. The future hasn't happened yet. So attend to the one reality that is immediately accessible. That which is left over when we release the past and the future. It's not bad. There's nothing troubling and nothing to be attached to. How can we be as always in flux, nothing remaining, an ongoing flow, ever fresh?
and for a little while maintain equanimity. But being at rest in stillness and clear. In the present moment as you attend to the flow of the breath of life. Simply being alive and knowing it. Breathing and knowing it. And being content. In the Theravada tradition, the cultivation of equanimity hinges very much on awareness of actions and their consequences. None of us is finally responsible for other people's behavior. We may influence it, we may catalyze it, but we do not control other people's behavior, and therefore we're not responsible for it. We are responsible for our own. Hold your own ground. Your own presence of mind. And as you allow your attention to venture out, the way other people have behaved in the past. Simply within their own lives, their own deaths, or in relationship to you.
are responsible for their own actions and we are not. So however troubling other people's behavior may be on occasion, imagine maintaining your own equilibrium, your own presence of mind, without being caught up in the dramas, the cravings and attachments, the hostilities and fears of others. Abide in your own peace, which no one else can ultimately disturb. Hold your own peace and attend to others with an open heart. As you open the portals of your mind to memories, to individuals whom you've encountered, engaged with, who on occasion have perhaps disrupted the equilibrium of your mind. Attend to them. And breathe in, breathe out. whatever mental afflictions they may be encumbered with, whatever suffering they may experience. Attend to them closely, and as you breathe in, arouse the yearning. May you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Even without their knowing it, invite them into the realm of possibility, the realm of freedom. As you imagine with each in-breath drawing in the darkness of their concerns, their burdens, their sorrows and pains. Imagine drawing off that darkness and extinguishing it in the light of your own heart. Imagine them becoming free. Imagine their relief 
their lightness. Everyone wishes for happiness even if they can't imagine it. So help them imagine. Breathe out the breath and the light of loving kindness. May you find the happiness that is your heart's desire. Even if you're unaware of it now, it's there, waiting to be heard. Invite them into this world of possibility, of a happiness they've never experienced. As they learn to cultivate its causes, Breathe out the light of loving-kindness. And if there is a sequence to their flourishing, wish them first of all peace of mind. Wish them first of all equanimity. And out of that sense of ease, of inner composure and stillness, wish them for clarity. The clarity of the heart, the clarity of the mind. their clarity, wish for them bliss, genuine happiness.
imagine it. Let your attention rove. And whoever comes to mind, breathe in and breathe out. let yourself come to mind. One more worthy individual with your own hopes and fears, joys and sorrows. With each in-breath, arouse compassion for yourself. With each out-breath, loving-kindness.
release all appearances. Let your awareness come to rest in its own evenness. This luminosity that is always present during all the joys and sorrows you've ever experienced, there is a one taste of clarity. Rest in that simple clarity, the luminosity of your own awareness. Practicing shamatha is like learning how to play classic music, classical music, learning how to play it well, learning the notes, learning the nuance, turning it into a thing of beauty. So there's not a whole lot of improvisation in mindfulness of breathing. Kind of you're doing it correctly or not correctly. And then you're doing it more correctly, with greater subtlety, greater balance, greater finesse. That's true for all three of the practices. The, the music is pretty clear. You play the notes. When it comes to the four measurables, it's a bit different. If you're playing the same tune every single time, bound to get boring. It's bound to get repetitive. Right? Isn't that true? So the four measurables are more like jazz improv. I think so. That you're not just wandering all over the place, you know, diddly diddly whatever like that. You're not just letting the mind wander all over the place. 
at the same side, there's one extreme. The other is just hut, 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 you know, just step by step, bring, bring to mind the attached person. Yes, I'm attached to you and I'm going to break through the attachment. Okay, next. <laughs> boring. So rigid, so dry and sterile. So f- whether it's for, for any of the four, if you can learn how to be an artist there, improv, you know the, you know the basic music, you know the themes. We've done it now full cycle almost for all four of the four measurables. Try to make it fresh each time. So you know you're playing the music, but you've never quite played it this way before. Right? Keep it fresh. One way to keep it fresh is to keep your eyes wide open in between sessions. Because there's always no, no material. No material. Right? Keeps it fresh. It's important. So, hola. I see a number of questions have mounted up, so I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best to keep the responses fairly short. Because again, we're facing Sunday off. Hola. So now here is one. I'm going to keep it anonymous. You know, there's a name, uh, but I do feel it's it's quite relevant to a lot of people. So I'll just read it. I'm having some strange sensations. There's heaviness that starts from the he- from the head or upper body, moves downward, feeling as though my head and upper body are being pulled downward. So some somatic sensations coming here. Similarly, the same thing happens, but this time it's upwards. Kind of these surges of energy moving downwards, upwards. This will, this will oscillate between up and down. Also, but not as often... It is moving away from the midline of the body, towards the outside of the body. This started when I was doing mindfulness of breathing, emphasizing releasing control of the breath. Also a heaviness in the chest when practicing awareness of awareness. I wonder if there's anything I should or should not be doing when this happens. So, I think, again, that was one person's unique experience, but I think it's relevant to a lot of others. As soon as I read that this happens when I'm releasing the breath, then again, I, I relaxed. If the person had said, and this happens when I'm really pushing the envelope, you know, I'm really trying to do better, and I really think I'm about to get there, I think maybe, you know, Shabbat is coming soon, then, then I think, uh-oh, okay, have to give this person a good talking to, right? But whatever's coming up in terms of, now this is for everybody, in the practice of Shamatha, any of the three methods, just by the way, especially subtly in the mind. In any of these, as you're going deeper into shamatha, it's just bound to catalyze some really strange, anomalous somatic experiences, often experienced as a sense of flow of energies, you know, up in the head, up into the heart, into the gut, to the side, a sense of rotation, movement, tingling, vibration, explosions of energy, releases, myoclonic jerks, all kinds of things can happen, right? And if they're happening, if the catalyst for that happening is because you're getting so relaxed, maybe even in the supine position, and you're releasing the breath and releasing the breath, and then the really weird stuff happens. Good. Don't worry about it. Just let it be. Just if you consider it just from straight logic, how, how bad could it be? Some really weird sensations are coming up because you got so relaxed. That doesn't sound like a recipe for disaster to me. You know, if it came because you're clenching up and trying really hard and getting more sessions in and pounding, pounding on the door of shamatha, that could be a problem. 
But if it's coming out of relaxation, then what's coming up there is because of a loosening, and these energies are getting to flow where they were previously constricted with all the tightness and all of that. So, short answer is, no worries, mate. You know, just relax around it, let it be, let it be. And that goes for emotions, so this happened to be somatic. Other times, other people, I know this has happened. You have some really good sessions, really loose, really relaxed, and then you get these eruptions, almost like a volcano, of emotions coming up and desires and memories and so forth and so on. You say, where the heck did this come from? Well, there's only one possibility. It came from your substrate consciousness. It came from your mind. So be there. Be present with it. And then how you respond to it depends on the method. Mindfulness of breathing. Breathe it out. Breathe it out. Settling the mind. Be present with it. Awareness of awareness. Shoot beyond it. So that's good. Yesterday you started to mention archetypes in the bardo of becoming. Can you talk a little bit more about these archetypes? In Tibetan Buddhism they would they would talk about the hundred peaceful, hundred hundred and eight peaceful and wrathful deities. But if you if you know nothing about what form these might take, what would you expect to see? Especially if you're not a Buddhist practitioner and that and kind of immersed in Buddhist worldview. Likewise, in other practice, it is said that when you uh, react, when you reach a certain point in the practice, the five Buddha families manifest. But this, but they're, with their complete mandalas, uh, what does this mean to someone who has no idea of the five Buddha families? So good. So His Holiness Dalai Lama has responded to this one. Uh, so this person, you probably read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, perhaps other texts, which speak of the 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 transitional process of dharmata, of ultimate reality, where these archetypal forms of peaceful and wrathful deities arise. And to give away the plot, what should you do at that time when the really peaceful ones arise? What is very easy to do, of course, is the knee-jerk reaction, enter into an I-it relationship with the deities. Ooh, a pretty one. Oh, you know. I like her. You want to be my consort? <laughs> and they kind of say... Next, <laughs> you know, and then you get the wrathful ones. I don't want to be your consort. Ah, I go the other way, you know. And so, you know, attraction and aversion, and then you basically miss both opportunities, and then you just kind of get ejected into the next transitional process, the transitional process of becoming. So His Holiness Dalai Lama was asked about this, because if you see the descriptions, you see the iconography of these 108. Well, they're very Buddhist. And so, what if you're a Christian? <laughs> You know, or an atheist. That'd be really a bummer. You know, they shouldn't be happening at all, let alone Buddhist ones. And a Christian, you're hoping for angels and so forth, and suddenly you get all these Buddhist deities. Not what I'm counting on, you know. And so, as Holiness said, the type of the type of images, the actual manifestations, the forms, he said these will be related to what you're bringing to it. So, a Christian is more like, likely to see Christian archetypal imagery. And a Buddhist, more Buddhist archetypal imagery. The um, materialist will just be flabbergasted. Just like, this shouldn't be happening. This was, I was waiting for nothing to happen, and I'm getting this. This is way more than I wanted. Whatever happened to rest in peace? I mean, come on. That's what I asked him to carve on my gravestone. This is not peace and it's not restful. I want my money back. So, the type of imagery, according to His Holiness Dalai Lama, really depends on what you're bringing to the plate, right? So, that's overall it. 
That's overall it. Uh, and especially, very explicitly, when it comes to the bardo of becoming, it says you bring a lot of your baggage from your past life into that, especially the earlier phases of that bardo of becoming, kind of the classic bardo, going from here to there into the next life. I bring a lot of your past, uh, your memories, your predilections, your connections with other people and so forth. So, Buddhist understanding, you're a ghost. And you move at the speed of thought. And you're very likely to move and drop in on people you've had relationship with in the past life. And dropping in, watching your funeral, for example. Uh, and then probably getting a lot more information than you wanted. Because you not only see the, their performance of the nice eulogies and talking about you and you know praising you, hopefully... But you can also see it as a person is reading the eulogy and reading the eulogy and thinking, I'm going to get his money. I'm going to get a lot of money. I'm going to be so happy. Finally, the old geezer died. Thank God he didn't use up more of his money. And, you know, and, he, and you get to see what he's thinking. So that's really a bummer. So there it is for the bardo of becoming so strongly influenced by your own past connections, memories, predispositions. And then you kind of grow out of it as you're moving towards the latter part of the bardo. You kind of leave the last one behind and then you're venturing into new territory. But the part about the five Buddha families is quite interesting. I've gone on, but we have a lot of questions here. Suffice it to say that clearly, if one is practicing stage regeneration practice, classic Buddhist practice, like in the Vajra Essence, speaks detail about the five Buddha families, each one having its own, oh, hand implements and form and color and consort and Buddha field and so forth and its own direction and so forth and all of that. So if you're cultivating that, meditating, meditating on that, will that type of archetypal imagery come up in the bardo? Absolutely, yes, of course. It's very good. Excellent. What I find intriguing, though, really, really intriguing, is that even, and this is making a deep statement, it's, it's true or false, and that is, even if you've not done stage generation practice, if you go this very sleek, utterly unadorned path of Dzogchen, which frankly I think very few people do, most people who practice Dzogchen, they're adorning it, they're augmenting it with stage regeneration, completion, poa, terma nakpo, protector, protector practices, and so forth. I mean, pretty much people are really augmenting it with a lot of other practices. Why not? But if one didn't, if one were not too, if one follows just Dujun Lingba's, okay, here it is, the straight, deculturalized, deculturalized. Because when you look at Shamatha, that's not East-West. That's not Indian. It's not Tibetan. Settling the mind is natural state, exactly what culture does that belong to? And then you go to emptiness. Well, that's got no culture to it. Then you go to pristine awareness. That's got no culture. Has no time, no location. That could be anywhere, any galaxy. Pristine awareness is pristine awareness. So that can be your trajectory. It's just acultural, acultural, acultural. Boom. Completely natural. Right? And then you come to the fourth one. The direct crossing over. And once again, there's no visualization involved. Not in the core practice. And then lo and behold, it said, out of that, the five Buddha families appear. So if that's true, and certainly there's... There's been a lot of time to put that hypothesis to the test. It's been practiced for hundreds of years, just in this historical era. If that's true, then it would suggest that those five Buddha families are something that's not simply tied to culture or to one religion. Maybe it's much more like oxygen, nitrogen, helium. You know, just something coming from nature. If so, that would be very interesting. Because it's quite detailed descriptions of what arises spontaneously with no visualization at all. 
just resting and then seeing these natural creative expressions coming out of Rigpa and seeing them coming out of absolutely archetypally. So, who knows? It'd be interesting to find out. So, two days ago, this morning, yesterday, whenever, you drew parallels between shamatha on the breath and practice involving focusing on a coarse external object, like a, for example, a rock, and practices involving present moment awareness of object of the six senses. Yeah. So, to clarify, if one focused on a rock, would you, would the acquired sign arise, or is the object just too concise? Very good. I can give a short answer. It's too concise. It's too concise. When you're practicing, when you're focusing on what is called the earth casina, the earth casina, that's more or less like a rock. But what it is, is it's a, it's a, it's a dirt pizza. That would just be the best, easiest way to talk. You You know what a pizza looks like? Imagine it's made out of clay. You put it on a square bracket, you put it at about 45 degree angle from your eyes, you gaze downward at it, you want no blemishes in it, like straw and gravel and so forth. You're looking down on it, so there you are, it may as well be a rock, except for you're not looking at it as that object, you're looking at this as as emblematic of earth element, solidity and firmness throughout the universe. So this is a prop. You're really not interested in that particular earth pizza, this is a prop. So you attend to it, until there arises a, the acquired sign, which is simply now the after image of that prop. And then you focus on that. But really, as much as possible, you disengage from any specifics, any particularities of that particular one. Because it's all about earth element. But if you're looking at a rock, that's a rock. right? So, in that regard, if you're just focusing... So when Padmasambhava says focus on a stone, a stick, or a flower, he's not doing this in order to arouse a... a a, an archetype, an acquired sign, and so forth. No, it's just really, really basic. Like, oh, I remember, you know, stare at a candle. Okay, good. Stare at a candle. It's just a very basic way to kind of attach the, your mind with a rope of mindfulness to some object. Okay? But if you're doing casina practice, and there are ten casinas, then for those there are acquired signs and counterpart signs, and that goes archetypal. So, similarly, if one focused on objects of the, of the five, of the six senses, would the acquired sign arise, or is the focus just too scattered to too many objects? Yeah, there would be no acquired sign. No reason to believe there would be. The acquired sign, really, it's very specific. I've only seen it in the um, Theravada tradition. Uh, and it's very, very specific. I mean, there are ten casinas. There are ten casinas. And it includes the primary colors, white, yellow, red, and blue. And then you, you focus that as a visual object. Then you focus on a mental object. And then you get that counterpart sign, the colors up in the form realm. And then it's archetypal. So, moving right on. If it's just a matter of practicing from 12 to four, from 12 to 18 months to realize shamatha, why aren't there more fully realized as at least uh, real, why are there more fully realized as least at least Westerners? So why, when after so many hours of practice, you asked your lama? Clarification about the fourth stage. He said, what is the fourth stage? If according to the time span you give for full realization, it should only take a few months of dedicated practice. Oh, that's a bit of oversimplification. So if I, obviously if I've given that impression, that's an oversimplification. Uh, there are many factors involved. And I want to generalize this, that I want to focus on my own experience. And that is, number one, you may become very adept at one practice. 
a mindfulness of breathing. Let's imagine you get to stage six, a mindfulness of breathing. Does this mean then if you just go immediately to a Buddha image, generate, generating a Buddha image, that you just get a free pass all the way through the first five stages up to stage six in a Buddha image? Uh-uh. Nope. Nope. How about you're focusing on a Buddha image? You get up to stage six on Buddha image. And then you go to awareness of awareness. Will you immediately be at stage six on awareness of awareness? Nope. How about you achieve shamatha in the first jhana in the earth kasina? You fully achieve the first jhana in the earth element. So you've, you've really connected with, fully engaged with the counterpart sign of the earth element. You've achieved the first jhana in the first element. Then you go to the water element. You immediately get a freebie and get the, for the first jhana in the water element. Nope. It means you'll have a faster track to the others. That is, if you achieve it once, you'll have a faster track to the others. But you don't immediately get a free pass to all the rest. So that's a general statement, right? And then there's an awful lot of variation. Does it take 12 to 18 months? For some people, it can take three. For Buddha Shakyamuni, it took an afternoon. That is, as a young man, you know, as a, as a youth, he just sat under the rose apple tree and he got it presto, like that. And then he lost it presto, like that. You know, and then he achieved it later. And then he lost it later. Then he achieved it again. So, it's not so simple. It depends so much on what you're bringing to the practice. Past lives, this life, imbalances in the body, lack of imbalances in the body. So how long it takes depends on many, many variables, and not the least of which are external variables. And that is, overall, shamatha is unusual among Buddhist meditations, in the sense that really, overall, generally speaking, it really requires a conducive environment. And not for three months here, and then shatter it, and then go off and, when your visa expires, and go someplace else for three months and then shatter it as you need to go to another place, and then go to another place, and shatter it as you need to go to another place, really breaks the continuity. Really breaks the continuity. And the key to shamatha, to actually methodically be moving through those nine stages to shamatha, you really want to have a continuously conducive environment with good health, good food, no hassle, a nice conducive environment to be able to stay there and practice until you achieve it. That's not easy to come by. That's why I keep on talking about creating a contemplative observatory. Because I've been training people in this for years, and the major obstacle has been environmental. Oddly enough, one would think we have so much garbage going on in the mind that it would be sex, it would be anxiety, it would be fear, it would be neurosis, it would be all kinds of internal stuff. In my experience of teaching others, not been that. It's been mostly environmental. Of just not having a conducive environment where people can sit down and just practice until they achieve it. And those things, you, you would think money can buy it. It's not so easy. So, if you if you want to do run some really really big important long term neuroscience project research project, you need a neuroscience lab. If you want to study the stars, you need an astronomical observatory, right? And likewise for contemplative research, the observatory really is indispensable, especially for shamatha. Once you've achieved shamatha, then you're kind of a free floater. Then you can bring your shamatha wherever you go. But until you've achieved it, it's difficult. So. 12 to 18 months, Lama Zubar Rinpoche, very accomplished yogi. He was recently guiding one of his students, happened to be also trained with me, and very strong motivation, very good discipline, strong motivation, all good. And she developed strong motivation to achieve shamadhi. He said, okay, good, go off, give yourself two years in a, con in, a, in a conducive environment that continues all the way through. So she is. That's where she is right now. Okay, But the environment's really important.
So, I don't say, oh, it'll just take you 12 to 8 months. Don't say that. For some, it may take a lot longer. But again, where were you practicing? How continuous was the practice? Internally, how it was? Maybe the, the environment's really continuous, and your practice is all over the place. Up, down. Then you can practice for you know, 80 years, and you won't achieve it. So, if you want to see how you achieve it, go back and look at the outer prerequisites and the inner prerequisites. They come up in all kinds of literature, including the Attention Revolution. You check those out. If the outer prerequisites are there, the outer requisites, the environment, if they're present and you have it for a year or two, and then you look inwardly, contentment, having few desires, pure ethics, completely abandoning, obsessive rumination of, of desires and so forth, then it should be accomplished. There's no, there's no magic to it. It really is cause and effect. But the outer causes, it turns out, to have been very difficult to come by. The inner causes, not so easy. So the awareness and the object of awareness must also be mutually independent. Mutually independent. Did you mean interdependent? Interdependent, yeah. That's right. In the absence of one, the other cannot be present. So the awareness and the object of awareness. Will you please explain more about this and where does it occur in primordial consciousness or in, in the substrate, substrate consciousness? Sure, for the substrate consciousness. If there's no substrate, there's no substrate consciousness. You can't just have a free-floating substrate wandering around looking for a mate. And you can't have substrate consciousness without substrate, so they're just they're just bound. It's, it's a system. It's a system. So linguistically, one can say, well, what's the more objective aspect? Well, that's a substrate. What's the more subjective aspect? Well, that's a substrate consciousness. Right? Aha. When it comes to the deepest dimension where the corollary, but now the ultimate dimension, then it's primordial consciousness. What are you attending to? Dhammadatu. Dhammata. Emptiness. Never can separate them. Right? Never. I mean, primordially they're indivisible. Internally they're, any separation is inconceivable. They always go together. But likewise, there's no visual perception without a visual object. There's no visual object without visual perception. And so for all the others. Mutually interdependent. Some seemingly more dualistic, like the visual impression as I look at your slacks. It's white over there. My visual perception seems to be, I'm looking from over here. Nevertheless, there is no visual perception without, without visual objects. And no visual object without visual perception. There is no, to push this up to make it more interesting, in the philosophy of physics, they speak of observational entities observational entities and theoretical entities. So observational entities are like mass. I'm experiencing the weight and so doing I can also experience the mass of the glass of water in my... I'm getting it. I'm getting it directly. I'm getting data. That's mass. Uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, this glass of water, there's it's generating a gravitational field around it. Okay? As the Earth has a gravitational field, so does any body of mass. The gravitational field, well, that you get only indirectly. So that's the theoretical entity. Gravitational fields, electromagnetic fields, electromagnetic waves, spin, charge. You don't get them in the same way that you see color, like direct perception. And so when we think of mass, we think of velocity. When we think of 
gravity, electromagnetic fields, and so forth. These are the theoretical entities by which we make sense of the observational entities. Right? And so the Buddhist perspective here would be these theoretical entities conceived by physicists, they do exist, but only relative to the mind that conceives them. They don't exist out there. They weren't discovered hovering all by themselves with their own in inherent identity and the scientists just pluck them out of nature. But these theoretical entities, which are considerably you know, the framework of our physical universe and modern scientific understanding, yeah, they do exist. They exist relative to the mind that conceives them. But now the scientific mind that conceives of gravity, of electromagnetic fields, of energy, space-time, and so forth, the mind that conceives them also arises relative to his own children. So, just as there are no parents, you're not a mother without having kids. But your kids are not kids unless they have a mother. So, so which came first? Actually, neither one. They come just like which came first, left or right, up or down. There isn't one without you. So something like that. Yeah, good, I think I'm going to make it through. When settling the mind in its natural state, sometimes the sense of I also becomes very present, apparent. If I observe it, trying to be without distraction, without grasping, I get stuck on it because it's pretty coarse, or pretty constant. In order to carry on with the practice, should I do some investigation, as in the practice of awareness of awareness, to dissolve a little bit? From Nico. No. Unless you want to enter into Vipassana. There's nothing wrong with that, but then you're no longer doing settling the mind in its natural state. So one isn't better than the other. They're just different practices. So then if you want to start investigating it, then you would start practicing the close application of mindfulness to the mind. Or you might apply Madhyamaka investigation or Mahamudra type of Vipassana investigation into what is the nature of the subject and probing into it. How does it emerge? How is it present? How does it dissolve? Full-fledged Vipassana practice. Right. If you would like to continue the practice as a means for allowing your mind to dissolve into the substrate consciousness, in other words, to settle in its natural state, then you don't investigate. Because the investigation itself, the very act of investigation, is activating your ordinary mind. In other words, it's keeping it active, which means it will not melt and dissolve into substrate consciousness. So as long as you're still there, caught up in it, identifying with it, and asking questions and probing and investigating, it all has great value, but it doesn't have value for letting it dissolve and melt away into the substrate consciousness. So if you're pra really practicing settling the mind in its natural state as a, as a method of shamatha, then when the sense of I am arises, you treat it like every other process. Anger, joy, love, image of a pineapple, anything. It's all even, whatever comes up. And as Lerap Lingma says, whether it's long or short, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, coarse or subtle, virtuous or non-virtuous, one taste, whatever's coming up, including a very persistent sense, I am the meditator, I am the meditator. You don't even talk to it. You don't even say, oh yeah? What does that make me, mashed potatoes? <laughs> you know, you don't have a dialogue with it. If it's there, it's coming up. You're space. You're just space. And now that sense of I am, I'm meditating, I am present, if that comes up, just that's one more thing 
footballs, pineapples, I am all the same. Just let it be. And in that way, the mind just, it unravels itself, including the sense of I am, I am meditating, I am meditating. And then it's as if, does anybody, anybody want to play with me? Anybody want to dance? Nobody want to dance? Okay, I'll sit down. And you all sit down. And then your mind settles in its natural state. Okay? Yeah, good. Hola, so. So, six o'clock, Saturday afternoon. One whole day just to practice. So enjoy yourself. Be gentle with yourself, please. Don't push too hard. And yet, if you're too slack, as nowadays it's so easy to think, what will you do after the after the retreat? Then after retreat, then you'll be thinking, what on earth was I doing during the retreat? <laughs> so, be here now and enjoy it. And I'll see you around. I give this, isn't this called the royal wave? The royal wave to noble silence. Ah, yeah, she does it better. The, the royal wave to noble silence. Show you.